Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Eric Baldwin and Tyler McNabb, authors of Classical Theism and Buddhism, Connecting Metaphysical and Ethical Systems, published by Bloomsbury Academic Press in 2022. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Eric and Tyler. Hey, thank you. Nice to be here. Great. Glad to have you here. Let's let's just dive in. Uh, your book argues that classical theism and Buddhism, or at least some Buddhisms on some interpretations, are philosophically compatible. But this is a pretty surprising claim, given some of the metaphysical commitments that most Buddhist philosophers hold. Uh, so we'll dive into your arguments um, soon, but maybe first top line, can you explain why you think this is an important claim to defend? What motivated you to write this book? Eric, you want to go first? Yeah, um, sure. The primary motivation, I suppose, is a bit of an extension of what we were working on in our Plantingian uh, religious epistemology in the in world religions book. Um, that was my primary interest, uh, and uh, as a way to further some of the things we've been working on. Yeah, so we have um, a volume with Lexington that is basically kind of comparative religious epistemology. And to see what to what extent these other religious traditions can make use of Plantinga's re, uh, religious epistemology. Uh, for those unfamiliar with uh, Plantinga, he's a philosopher <laughs> and a really important philosopher in the, in the 20th, 21st century. And he argues that that religious belief can be properly basic. Um, that's to say rational apart from any sort of argument. And uh there's this kind of objection to Plantinga's epistemology where it's like, well, maybe all sorts of different religious views, even really diverse religious views can make sense of Plantinga's epistemology. And so uh, in the book, we're like, well, hey, uh, you know, we take a very kind of standard Nagarjuna interpretation of the Mahayana tradition, and and we look at other various traditions of uh, uh, different religious traditions and argue that, hey, you know what? Um, these religious traditions, it, it doesn't seem like they can make use of Plantinga's epistemology. Maybe if you adjust them a little bit, then maybe you could. Um, and so this book really was saying, okay, wait a minute. Maybe we're too too fast in, in that book. Maybe in this book, what we're going to do is we're going to look at and see like to what extent maybe a Buddhist can really be a theist and, and then thus make sense of Plantinga's epistemology. Because that's, that's the idea is that you need some sort of theism or something like theism to make sense of Plantinga's epistemology. So let's 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 go ahead and see. And so I was I was giving a lecture um, to my comparative um, uh, philosophy class, and I was talking about um, uh, Buddhism and the impermanence and interdependence thesis and emptiness. And at the same time, I was just reading like getting really big into kind of the classical Thomist literature, where um, not to spoil too much, but to where. Um, God is uh, specifically uh, not identified as a thing and, or as an object or as um, an entity, right? And, and I was like, wait a minute, technically there could be some consistency here depending on how we apply the impermanence and interdependence theses. And so, yeah, then I was like, Eric, let's write this book. And uh, we wrote it. So that's roughly the history. That sounds great. And so you've anticipated a little bit of my second question. So maybe Eric, you can fill in here too uh, about what got you interested in the in the relationship between classical theism and Buddhism. Um, well, I guess it, it, part of it goes back to my dissertation, um, in which I was trying to argue uh, for uh, a solution to what I call the problem of fully informed, uh, reasonable disagreement. How can you be uh, fully aware of the reasons for believing some? thesis say about ultimate reality, that it's empty of being or that it is full of being, um, and be uh, be reasonable uh, in that disagreement. That is, you know, you've got 
in our book, you got John and Paul, right? John's the, the Zen Buddhist and Paul's the Thomistic uh, theist. And uh, they're both fully aware of the reasons that the other will provide in favor of their views. Um, but they disagree about the truth value of those views. And yet they're both fully reasonable. You know, that's kind of mysterious. How does that happen? You know, um, and so I basically argue in my dissertation and elsewhere that in what makes one reasonable is that you're a member of a particular tradition of inquiry that has certain commitments to uh, basic sources of evidence or justification. Um, and that your reasoning in accordance with those standards is what makes you reasonable. And that reasonability is, um, say, multiply instantiable. You can be fully reasonable with respect to tradition Y, fully reasonable with respect to tradition Z, let's say, um, even though you disagree. Uh, so that, to me, was uh, in the background of, uh, again, my dissertation and in the book, the Plantingian Religious Epistemology book. Um, and again, to, to further what Tyler was saying, it's like you've got philosophers who think being is ultimate reality and you got philosophers who deny that very thing. Um, how can you make those fit well together? And so, again, that was my personal motivation for getting on board in this project. How, how can we articulate in greater detail um, that that sort of thing is indeed possible and maybe even actual? Great. So so let's let's dive into the, the arguments here then. Um, Maybe we can start by identifying the metaphysical doctrines of these two traditions that you're taking on, and of course they're they're big. So, uh, what do you mean by classical theism, and what do you mean by Buddhism? You've mentioned Nagarjuna, for instance, and now Zen Buddhism. So maybe help our our listeners out a little bit. What's classical theism? What's Buddhism on your your understanding? Yeah, so um, I guess I'll, I'll go first, and then Eric, if you want to just follow follow up and, and uh, pick up all the the, the uh, items that I missed um, yeah so by classical theism we don't mean uh, a sort of theism that is endorsed by a lot of contemporary analytic philosophers right so if you re re would read Alvin Plantinga or if you were to read Richard Swinburne um, they would look at God as a person like you and I are persons they would look at God um, you know it's just a difference in degree rather than a difference in kind, right? When, when it comes to God and us. And yeah, he doesn't have a body, but, you know, still fundamentally, he's a person. Uh, he has got properties, you know, uh, power and, and uh, knowledge and goodness that we, we predicate to him. And these, these are all distinct from each other, uh, which is all still distinct from, you know, his existence, whether or not you want to consider that a property. Um but uh, yeah, so so God is 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 fundamentally kind of like us, is anthropomorphic uh, in some sense, um, and uh, we're we're wanting to deny that. We're we're we, we think that God is actually not in time. They do. Um, so God is wholly immutable, not just like He doesn't change in accordance to His like goodness, um, but like He's wholly immutable. Uh, he's impassable. We can't cause change in God. We can't cause God to suffer. He's simple. What what philosophers, the medievals would call metaphysically simple. Let's just say he's not made up of any parts. Uh, all the different um, properties that I mentioned earlier aren't really properties. Uh, they're shorthand descriptions of being of saying the same thing, namely that God is God is the sheer act of existence itself. <laughs> Uh, and so that, that's what we mean by classical theism, this, this kind of view where God is not a thing um, uh, and, and, and we exist, but in some different sense from existence itself, when we participate and find our grounding and being in, in, in existence itself. Uh, and by um, Buddhism, um, here I, I take, um, we, we look at uh, Jay Garfield's uh, engaging Buddhism at the beginning of, of that book, he kind of gives almost like a uh, a little summary uh, of kind of the fundamentals of Buddhism. And so we take the most metaphysical theses from this uh, impermanence interdependence, which of course leads to emptiness. And uh, we take that to be kind of like what's central here to the metaphysics of uh, Buddhism. And so impermanence by that, I mean that subtle change uh, entails um, uh, uh, change uh, simplicator, uh, change within the substance. Uh, so it's no longer the same substance we're talking about, right? Uh, the identity uh, is not kept, that it changes from moment to moment. 
Um, and uh, by interdependence theses, I mean that all things are ultimately conceptually and causally uh, dependent on other things for its existence, for its for its being. So um, things don't keep identity, right? Uh, they change from 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 moment to moment, and uh, ultimately those things that change from moment to moment are all conceptually and causally uh, linked to other things. And, and uh, there is no, ultimately, there is no substance, so to speak. Uh, there is no inherent nature of a thing. Uh, we think that there is, uh, we act like there is, but, but truly given interdependence and impermanence, uh, all things are, are, are truly empty. So, I'm curious then you so you mentioned Nagarjuna uh, and you talked about Zen Buddhism and some other philosophers come up throughout the course of the book. How did you decide which Buddhist philosophers you're going to engage with? Are you primarily taking your lead from Garfield? what What brought you there? Um, yeah, so we we look at, I think Eric and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, we look at kind of philosophers that um, have kind of meant the most to us in our our studies. So, for example, um, Burton, and uh, Wesserhoff and Garfield were really big for me. Uh, uh, Eric, do you want to say the, the philosophers that uh, that you wanted to engage yeah. with? Yeah, so I'm um, more familiar with the uh, Kyoto School of uh, uh, Zen Buddhist philosophers, Nishida, Abe, um, and folks like that. And um, my one of my advisors at Purdue, Donald Mitchell, that was his region. I took a few classes from him. So... Um, that's primarily what I was uh, bringing to the table. Okay, great. So um, let's. What I thought we could do is we can kind of move through the book in sequence because your argument builds in that way. So we're not going to be able to hit sort of all of the highlights um, of the book, but we'll we'll do what we can in the time that we have. So um, so chapter one. Now that we've got Buddhism and classical theism defined, we can understand the title: Can a Buddhist be a classical theist? Um, and if I understand you correctly, one of the, the main arguments that you put forward is that what you call FMD, the fundamental metaphysical doctrines of Buddhism, um, applies only to things in the sense of things that bear properties. And since God, as you've just said, is not a thing that doesn't bear properties, he's in a sense excluded from this doctrine. And so that in that way, you can have consistency between FMD and classical theism. Uh, first of all, have I gotten that right? And second, can you maybe unpack that reasoning a little bit? Eric, do you want to go? Yeah, I, I, that seems right. Um, the Another way to put it would be uh, to put it more in the directly into the Nagarjan and tradition is that um, all phenomena are empty of own being. Um, so, uh, and by we take thing to be a synonymous with uh, phenomena or object, uh, that all those terms are basically trying to get to the same notion that uh, all things are interdependent, uh, i.e., uh, lack own being. Um, and uh, and then the next move would be, well, God's not a thing, right? So he's excluded from that category of phenomena, object, thing, <laughs> why not? Uh, so that leaves a conceptual space to affirm both the FMD and uh, the core tenets of classical theism. Yeah, and if I can add, um, when it when it there's there's this big tradition. Um, that will specifically argue like uh, God is no entity, he's no thing, because he's rather the grounding of all things, right? And so if you're trying to ground all things, right, unless you're wanting to have some sort of like um, self-cause, something like that, um, then, then if we're grinding all things, we can't then ground it in a thing. And so God is no thing. And so the new Platonic tradition, for example, will actually literally call God no thing, right? Almost as if nothing, right? Uh, and, you know, there is this big Neoplatonic tradition that uh, will even say um, that, uh, you know, God has uh, no being, um, very, this, this kind of like apathetic theology. Um, and if you look at um, various philosophers, uh, Christian philosophers, uh, even like pseudo-Dionysius, he calls God a no-thing, for example, uh, but yet he says he has he's beyond being, right? So there's this kind of emphatic phrase here that uh, we try to uh, smooth out a little bit. Um, and then ultimately, if you look at, at, at Christian thinkers um, like Catherine of Siena, like Jonathan Edwards, uh, they talk about 
Jonathan Edwards actually affirmed impermanence and interdependence, but they actually talk about themselves as being empty, as really there being one existence, uh, God. Um, Athanasius, St. Athanasius, a uh, person who fought for like the deity of Christ, the Council of Nicaea, for those who aren't familiar with who he is, you know, he talks about how the sun and moon, unless you take them all together, are empty in themselves. Um, and so, yeah, uh, we, we thought, well, there is this like apophatic Christian tradition that we think might uh, give us some resources uh, to go ahead and try to make some synthesis here. Great. I, if I might add, uh, um, please you go even ahead. got in Thanks. Descartes this sort of view uh, that, strictly speaking, only God is a substance, uh, is a primary substance, and other things that are considered substances or secondary substances. Uh, why? Well, because from moment to moment, they depend entirely on the sustaining uh, power of God to keep them in existence. Um, obviously, that's not how God works. God doesn't require anything outside of himself to sustain him in existence. Um, but all things do. All things, in that sense, are empty of being. They're empty of own being. They, we uh, Again, elsewhere in the book, we kind of dialogue with the idea of existential inertia and argue why that's not going to work. Uh, again, it's tied into this notion that all things are dependent on something else. Right. I, I not was... something else, strictly speaking. You know, you know, it's uh, some, uh, something beyond things that's uh, uh, um, being. Gotcha. Gotcha. Sorry, sorry to interrupt there. I, oh, sorry. I just, I just wanted to clarify that little point. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks. Uh, I was curious uh, in in your presentation of the thesis at this point because uh, if I'm understanding you right, it's something like it's about this. It's about the scope of the at what you call calling FMD, right? That it applies to to things where a thing is a th is a thing only if it bears um, properties. I was curious if your how your um, argument would go for Buddhist philosophers who are trope theorists who deny that things actually properly bear properties, that there's just property particulars and bundles, uh, and that that's, that's what it is to, to be a thing. Um, is that going to have to go differently, or are you thinking about those philosophers here too as well? Uh, do you want to take that? I have a quick reply maybe. Go, um, go, go ahead and reply, and then I'll, I'll add. Okay. Um, well, in, in our definition, we, we leave undefined what it is to be a property, right? So what we could do is uh, to uh, accommodate this trope tradition, we could uh, further define what it is to be uh, a property. Uh, and uh, then we might uh, try to, there's there are various ways we might go were we to do that. But on one way I can kind of see as property being uh, just another no thing. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, a trope being just another no thing. Um, and there wouldn't be any conflict if we were to further um, define the, uh, our definition there. And maybe there's other ways it might be a conflict, but as long as there's one way to make a potential harmonization, then we've we've got things going the way we want them to go. Yeah. So by trope theory, you mean uh, kind of like almost like metaphysical Lego pieces, right? Where uh, there is uh, the same type of trope, but numerically distinct tropes. And so you have tropes like uh, on an apple trope, you have like sweet trope <laughs> right, and right. Uh, red trope or green right. trope and, and right. so There's, forth. Exactly. There's no green that's shared among different that's right. different instances. It's just a property particular that, yeah. Exactly. And so uh, even if it's a, a, a property particular, um, we, we, you can just kind of assume that within the language of property and, uh, and still argue, uh, as Eric uh, uh, was saying, um that uh so a thing just is that which has property particulars or something like that and god has, has no pro property particulars and though therefore you know he's still no thing gotcha thanks uh so maybe then we can can go on um and look at chapter two for the the sake of time there's, there's a lot in here that we could talk about but again this is a, sort of a highlight and um please add more if you if you want as we go. Um, chapter two, Buddhist objections to classical theism. And here we get into criticisms within Buddhism against the existence of a divine being. And of course, this would be in the Hindu context, um, broadly speaking, like Ishvara, the creator god, or other sorts of deities in that context. Um, not So that's not exactly the god of classical theism, which you, you note. Um, and you take up three objections here, the argument from interaction, uh, the objection that causes must resemble their effect, and the problem of evil. So there's three in the chapter. Uh, maybe for the sake of time, we could focus on the objection that you take to be the strongest. So is there one of those that you think is the strongest? And then why do you think this objection fails? 
Um, can I just uh, real quickly uh, mention sure. something from the last chapter? Is that okay? Please, absolutely. Yeah, so um, actually two real quick things. Um, first off, I was just going to say that uh, some have argued that no um, Buddhist philosophers, what they mean, they mean like being simplicator. They don't just apply it to objects or things or phenomena. Um, so we have we had a, a couple different responses, uh, but one of them is looking at the uh, the Buddha and his kind of nonchalantness about metaphysics. And so whether you're wanting to argue uh, that we have free will or whether you're wanting to argue that uh, we have a soul or, or whatever, you know, the Buddha was simply kind of not interested in that because he didn't see that as relevant to realization. Um, and so, you know, we quote where, where the Buddha says these things about this. Um, it, but, you know, so ultimately, if, the, if you're like, well, you have more heavy duty emptiness, uh, maybe like Abe's uh, 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 emptiness. Abe. So, Abe. Uh, yeah, sorry. Sorry, Abe. Yes. Um, or you have um, uh, emptiness as just applied to kind of things or those that bear property particulars or properties. Um, uh, which one's correct, right? Which which metaphysical system is correct? Well, um, uh, like the Buddha, we might just say that uh, we... we uh, don't need to be committed to the more heavier metaphysical thesis. Um, in fact, we could even, what we're developing now um, is even uh, a skillful means response to, um, to this, this issue where um, even if the heavier metaphysical thesis is what's meant, um, nonetheless, maybe, maybe that was said for a particular time for a particular reason because um, it, it wasn't helpful for realization, but now, right, things have changed a little bit. And, and so now we can kind of more minimize the, the heavier uh, thesis. And then I was just going to say simply that uh, some people will always ask about um, uh, personal identity. And obviously Buddhism says, right, <laughs> no enduring self. How do we make sense of that on theism? And that, that's going to come relevant to soteriology and the ethics uh, chapters. Yeah. Um, and so Jonathan Edwards, we, we take a cue from here. He thinks that like, you know, we have these individual slices that are associated with each other, right? Uh, Tyler slice uh, 1 p.m., Tyler slice 2 p.m., Tyler slice 3 p.m., right? So on and so forth. And so Jonathan Edwards, actually, what he thinks is that uh, while each slice doesn't have like an, an enduring self, so to speak, an intrinsic identity, nonetheless, what, what God can do is he can take all of these slices, so to speak, and collectively uh, give some sort of like external stamp on it and give it like a transtemporal identity with all the collections of, of these, these, uh, these slices. And so wh whether or not you want to consider that a thing, since it's transtemporal and there's still no extrinsic, or there's still no intrinsic uh, enduring self, so to speak. Anyway, that, that's just roughly a quick picture of how we paint uh, uh, those, two, those two issues. Sorry. Sorry. I just, I really wanted to make Great. sure no, we, 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 we hit on those topics. Absolutely. Thank you. Anything you wanted to add to that, Eric? Yeah. Um, just to double what, uh, Tyler was, was doing there in, in the chapter two, when we're dealing with objections that are, I think less central or more easily dealt with. The main thing I had a problem with, with our initial project was people that, who specifically denied the transcendent, uh, place, if you will, uh, for uh, the classical theist god to be, you know, um, again, uh, Neshitani and Abe specifically look at this and say, no, <laughs> you know, we're denying uh, being and relative non-being, you know, um, uh, we're, we're affirming absolute nothingness, which is the uh, transcendent of platonic being and non-being. So where is place for classical theism there? Um, and that I thought was the biggest problem for the project. Uh, and the solution uh, that we mapped out was the one Tyler just iterated. So, um, you know, you, uh, yeah, so, so, so truthfully speaking, we deal with the most fundamental and most problematic objections in that first chapter gotcha. and then kind gotcha. of clean up in the second. Okay. So as you're, as you're cleaning up then in the second chapter, yeah. uh, which of the three, three objections that I, I mentioned, do you think would be the strongest that you might want to take up for the, the listeners? 
Yeah, so uh, there's a resemblance objection, which basically says that the cause and effect have to resemble each other. And so if the, if the effect is changeable, then the cause has to be changeable. That, that, that one doesn't, doesn't get me, doesn't, doesn't move me uh, uh, too much. Um, there's another one about like how impermanent or how, how something, um, uh, how can something that doesn't change interact with things that change? I think that one's more interesting. And then of course the problem of evil, um, you, you see in the literature, God, God's kind of like mocked in reference to, to, to evil in the Buddhist literature. Um, so, uh, there is a, a really interesting analogy that we draw from Eleanor Stump, um, where, you know, she talks about, you have this kind of two dimensional world and from this two dimensional world, um, you know, in the two dimensional world as a two dimensional creature, so to speak, you see, um, the world, uh, differently than say, if you were a three dimensional creature. And maybe if you were a three-dimensional creature, you would be able to interact with um, the two-dimensional creatures all at once. Because uh, maybe maybe in their world, one dies, and then the next one comes, and then they die, and the next one comes. But maybe from this three-dimensional point of view, you can see all of them at once. And so maybe somehow uh, God, um, who transcends space and time, is not a thing, um, uh, not even a person like you and I are persons, uh, maybe God can interact with with us all at once, so to speak, kind of like this 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 analogy that Eleanor Stump gives. Anyway, I, I think that's probably the most interesting one out of the three. But Eric might have a different view. Yeah, yeah I'd have to agree. Um, but yeah, to be honest, none of them that we deal with there are problematic as far as I'm concerned. But but we're trying to think of uh, problems that uh, our readers, our audience might have or things that we needed to address that would, might be immediate flags, you know, of why these uh, sorts of objections do, in fact, fail. Yeah, it was interesting. I was, as I was reading, I mean, you can't you can't possibly take up everything in, in a book, right? There's always always choices. It kind of struck me that um, I'm sure, you know, uh, Against a Hindu God, Paramal Patil's book on Ratnakirti, right? And I was just curious why. Um, you weren't engaging with like the design argument, the cosmological argument that Buddhists are critiquing in the Nyayaka, sort of the, the Nyaya um, arguments. Is it because Ratnakirti is a Yogacharan, you're not really engaging with them? Is it you just think kind of design arguments and cosmological arguments aren't really maybe the strongest? Just kind of curious what, what, drew, what drew you to which objections? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit of both. Um, so, uh, we're, we're trying to go with kind of a minimal Buddhist thesis here, right? We call it mere Buddhism after C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity. Um, it, but also uh, not so much looking at our arguments for God's existence good, but rather or not, are there arguments that disprove God's existence? So I guess you could kind of look at, uh, look at, well, hey, if they're objecting to these different arguments from design and, and cosmology of, uh, then maybe that's kind of like indirectly an argument for atheism, I guess, or at least agnosticism, right? Minimally, um, uh, if if there are no good arguments at the end of the day, something like that. Uh, but we were more interested in kind of like a positive case for um, classical theism being false, and so, yeah. Great. So let's um, again, in the sake of time, lots of stuff we can dig in, and please feel free to to go back if if there are things you want to pick up on as we move forward. Uh, chapter three is where you pivot to contemporary objections to classical theism. Uh, and here you're focusing on, again, sev several objections. Um, so first of all, for listeners, why would you uh, turn to contemporary criticisms if you've already sort of taken up Buddhist claims and and uh, classical theism? What's what's the motivation for this chapter in your book? Um, yeah, well, it's, it's uh, kind of like, all right, well, maybe this whole classical theism isn't really even intelligible, right? To talk about God being no thing, to talk about God being beyond being, right? Uh, maybe this just isn't even like a coherent system. And so, uh, sure, classical theism and Buddhism. Maybe you can make a maybe you can make a, a way where it kind of makes sense together. But I mean, the, the way that you kind of make it make sense is incoherent. <laughs> and so we, we kind of wanted to provide further motivation for taking uh, classical theism seriously as like a life project uh, so that uh, 
chapter one and two won't be in vain. <laughs> yeah, and to add to that, we wanted to have a sense of balance, right? Uh, there's a lot of people, I hope, who read this book, uh, people in uh, the classical theistic traditions, Christian traditions, Buddhist traditions, compared to philosophy traditions, and um, potentially a, a large segment of our audience might not know what we mean by classical theism, um, or if they do know, they might have these uh, immediate sort of objections to, as Tyler was saying, the coherence of it or the plausibility of it. So we wanted to look at the uh, sorts of objections people might encounter nowadays uh, and deal with those so that our, our book wouldn't be a non-starter to a, a, a large segment of the populace. Yeah, classical theism has seen better days in, the, <laughs> uh, in <laughs> analytic circles. Uh, yeah. Classical theism isn't very popular. Divine simplicity isn't very popular. Uh, while... Uh, for most of Christendom, these doctrines were very popular. <laughs> um, now, you know, uh, from the advent of Plenega and Swinburne and stuff, um, analytic philosophers of a religion typically uh, uh, are, aren't keen to defend kind of classical, classical theism, at least uh, most robustly defined. Maybe we could talk about an argument um, in that chapter, the objection from temporal knowledge. That one caught my eye because it's also one that's discussed in classical Indian philosophy, as you probably know, um, in terms of, um, well, in uh, Vajaspati Mishra and several other places engaging with with this kind of um, criticism. Uh, God in the World's Arrangement has some nice readable translations of, of this this argument. Um, but maybe you can talk about it in the contemporary context. What's the, the argument, um, the objection from temporal knowledge against classical theism for contemporary folks? Eric, do you, want, do you want me to do this, or do you want this? Yeah, if you would, that would be great. Okay. Yeah, go ahead and take this one. <laughs> okay. I just I didn't want to be talking too much. Um, right. So uh, here, I think the, the idea is that ultimately we're, we, when it comes to problems about how do we talk about, um, say, that it's um, 1039 now, or say that... Um, kind of certain indexicals or uh, when it, when it comes to understanding how God has knowledge and, and certain issues that are derived when we're talking about God having knowledge um, of certain truths. Um, it seems to me that we're looking at God's knowledge too anthropomorphically, that we're still kind of characterizing God fundamentally as you and I, um, again, a difference in degree, not kind. When, when we're talking about God, God's knowledge, God's knowledge is identical to his power and his goodness. God's knowledge then can't be propositional. Um, the idea being that um, whatever it means for God to have knowledge uh, is going to be, uh, it maps on to what, in some sense, to what we mean when we have knowledge, but it, it is going to be uh, uh, not the same thing. And so once you kind of get away from this um, anthropomorphic conceptions of what it means for God to have knowledge, uh, we think that there's more room here to, to make sense of how God can uh, have knowledge of certain truths that uh, seem problematic, so to speak, especially if he's timeless. Um, yeah. Eric, if you want to add anything to that. No, I think that's good. Yeah. It struck me that this, I mean, this is again, like a, an interesting connection to how this problem is discussed in uh, in, in the Indian context, but uh, it strikes me that it picks up on a theme that is happening throughout your book, which is about language and the sort of and how we speak about God. Uh, because one thing you might say is like, well, you're using this word knowledge, and I know what knowledge is in a human context. <laughs> I, I, I come to know something at a certain time, and previously I didn't know that, or I can give some sort of account of the structure of, a, of an awareness event. I can talk about dispositional and standing knowledge, and you know, I can have all these, these things that I can cash out. Um, but then when it comes to talk about how an eternal, simple uh, being can, can have knowledge, uh, it seems like our language slips. So uh, maybe just an invitation to say a little bit more about how you're thinking about language about God in this context. Eric, you want to? Yeah, sure. Um, so that reminds me about um, Aquinas's general methodology, where you start from the created thing and work to the uncreated on his metaphysics, right? That We're aware of 
objects of experience, right? And we have to make sense of those with language and we can do that uh, for our purposes being the sorts of things that we are. And again, as you were saying, as we uh, abstract from that more and get more rarefied in our con concepts about, um, you know, uncaused cause, and we've got these abstract notions pretty well down in, in a sense, but when we start thinking about what it would be for God to know something, well, we're really kind of stepping outside our uh, area, especially if you will. Right? Um, it's hard to say that because uh, we're already formulating everything in terms of concepts and, and terms that we understand uh, that are inherently limiting, right? Uh, where God is unlimited with respect to these things. Um, so again, it, it's just really difficult to, to say with uh, any certitude or any confidence necessarily what exactly God's mode of know knowing is. Um, but it's there, right? It, it has to be there because we have knowledge according to uh, Aquinas and that kind of methodology, right? You, you can't have the created without the creator. You can't have the, the thing that, that is dependent on um, be completely independent of anything, right? Um, at least within the Aquinas metaphysical picture. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's difficult to talk about what can't be talked about, right? <laughs> but we got to try anyway, so. Yeah, and so, so there is a strong uh, uh, view on God being ineffable, um, not being able to to know God's nature, so to speak, but still um, being able to talk about God either by way of negation uh, or by way of analogy. And so that's that's where this is coming in, is saying, all right, guys, um, and, and we actually know, at least according to, to Eric and I's that tradition, we were both Catholics. And so uh, in our tradition, it even says that um, God is more dissimilar than similar when it, when it comes to these things. Um, and so uh, here it looks like that um, why, while we can't say exactly what God is, we can at least make analogies that are, are imperfect and will only get, you know, something that 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 ultimately is 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 kind of like a minimal framework to get our minds in the right kind of position uh for for some sort of minimal understanding and so that that that's the idea here if i might add one little thing that um tyler said uh reminded me um there's the uh, chinese sage who keeps pointing to the moon getting you to have an experience of the moon and the, and the disciple keeps getting confused by the finger like no, <laughs> I'm I'm pointing to the moon. I'm using my my words and my gestures, my conventions to point to. That. Uh, so uh, a lot of what uh, the Aquinas picture is trying to do, I think, has this uh, pointing to to God, uh, and and that's what words are doing. That's what concepts are doing. It's pointing to to the being of God, which we can't comprehend, but we can get enough of an idea of what's going on through language and through concepts and stuff to get uh, properly acquainted with that. Um, right. And of course, pointing to the moon is the title of one of Jay's many books in uh, yeah. Buddhist philosophy. So chapters one through three really focus on uh, metaphysics Four turns to ethics. So you're not just looking at metaphysics; you're also looking at ethics. Of course, these are these are inter intertwined for Buddhists, and I think also for um, for classical theists. So chapter four is titled "Buddhist Ethics and Theistic Ethics: A Synthesis." And uh, this might be overreading, but I thought it was interesting that you were arguing for a synthesis here. Um, is that something that's different than just saying the two positions are compatible? Um, what's the project in in chapter four in particular? Yeah, it's to say that um, we can we can kind of create a coherent narrative, um, not just that there's kind of a logical consistency uh, that's disconnected, so to speak, but there there is this nice narrative that we can tell uh, about how these things fit together, and it's the same thing with this soteriology chapter as, as well. Um, what what we're doing is we're saying all right so um depending on who you are right it depends on what what you think the buddhist ethics are right? um 
So uh, whether you want to put it more in the virtue camp or whether you want to put it in a more consequentialist camp or whether you think that it's its own camp altogether, right, and, and it deserves its own name, so to speak, um, uh, theists do the same exact thing. Uh, theists are Some of theists are more consequentialist or virtue theorists. Obviously, you have divine command theorists, not too many of those in the Buddhist literature. But uh, nonetheless, um, uh, you know, looking at, uh, you know, the, the Eightfold Path and the uh, kind of uh, right intention, you know, right, um, uh, uh, right thoughts and that, that sort of thing, um, where there, there actually is a lot of commonality with like the Ten Commandments. And we can actually kind of break down the Ten Commandments in such a way where there, there is a lot of uh, continuity there. And ultimately, uh, God might give us commands so that we reach right realization, so that we, so that we, um, and this obviously gets in the soteriology chapter, but so that, that we um, act in a certain way. Uh, so he gives us commands so that we act a certain way uh, that mimics something like, uh, the Eightfold Path, and that ultimately that's so that he gives us these commands and tells us to act in these ways so that we have right realization, so that we have um, uh, nirvana, so to speak. Eric, did you want to add anything to that? Um, yeah, so I, I think chapters three and four are in a way trying to flesh out um, some of the themes we introduced earlier on about double religious belonging with Habito and some of the others that, um, you know, claim to be Buddhist and Christian, you know, to a lot of people, especially a, a large segment of our audience, analytic philosophers, like, what the heck could that possibly be? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, well, you know, here's a way it could go um, with the with respect to its ethics and the soteriology of giving a picture or a narrative, as Tyler was saying, of um, how this could actually go or how it really is being done by certain people out there. Um, and we didn't really have space to get into it, but um, there's all sorts of meditative traditions in uh, Christian and Buddhist circles. And you can have Buddhist and Christian monks getting together and doing the same sorts of practices. Um, uh, you know, they, they might frame what they're doing a little bit differently, obviously, but they're doing the same things. And it's like, you know, detaching from self or denying yourself or putting yourself to death. You know, you have that tradition in uh, Christianity of dying to yourself daily and picking up your cross and following Christ. And you have that tradition of, um, treating yourself as dead in, in Buddhism and uh, separating yourself from your, your transitory temporal desires for all sorts of things, you know, that you're not to be identified with your lust or your, your whatever, uh, and that you put those things aside. Um, and there's all sorts of, again, Buddhist meditative practices that the Christian can take up, remaining a Christian, to distance themselves from patients of various kinds or, or whatever. Um, uh, it's hard to, to talk about all of that. Right. So uh, we, I think in those chapters, we we're trying to show how you can have a certain commensurability with certain core themes within Buddhism and um, Christianity. And um, that would make uh, it maybe compelling for the reader to go look into more detail how that actually goes. You know, uh, I would I would venture to say if a typical Christian looks into some Buddhist meditative stuff or some other devotional kinds of devotional kinds of literature, uh, they'd see a lot more of these uh harmonization possibilities um, so again yeah, those two chapters yeah. are to, to hey this can be done go check it out and when we do it's, it's worth pointing out that in the soteriological chapter we do um take a kind of reductive view of karma uh so you know you can kind of take it in like a more heavy metaphysical way where um almost like you have a, a spiritual um um weighing um uh, uh uh, oh, geez, what, what what are those things called when it when it weighs uh, scales. Scales. balances scales scales balance. yeah, yeah kind of like yeah. a scale like balance scales there we go um all right and there's like this cosmic balance scale right but you can also just take it in more reductive sense where uh since we're all connected together um uh, whatever i whatever good stuff that leads to enlightenment that i kind of put into the world and i'm connected with others it's going to help everyone uh as as a whole sort of reach uh nirvana and it's going to um affect us in in you know positive ways and ultimately since we're all connected together me doing positive stuff's gonna um ultimately help me 
right? Um, and we're kind of a, in a more reductive way in the same way if I do bad things, um, the reverse happens. So uh, anyway, so on this, we, we do take a more reductive uh, view of Nirvana, but there are those in the literature who do that. So we, we don't feel too bad about that. Yeah, let's maybe since these two chapters work together, let me turn to the uh, soteri soteriology chapter as well. Uh, and this is titled Buddhist Soteriology and the God of Abraham. Um, Real quick before we dive into that, I noticed now, uh, as listeners probably will have, that we're now talking about Abrahamic traditions, not necessarily classical theism, because classical theism, as you frame it in the book, is something that at least um, you think is conceptually minimally consistent with uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, even if proponents of each of these traditions themselves might individual ones reject it, that you think logically it could be affirmed by all, all of these traditions. But chapter five, you're turning to the Abrahamic traditions, and you get into a little bit more uh, specific detail about these traditions. Uh, maybe, first of all, you could say a little bit about why you did that at this juncture. Why are you turning to sort of Abrahamic traditions? Yeah, so uh, here – oh, sorry. Go ahead, Eric. No, uh, I was just going to say just to, to limit things a bit. I mean, um, we, it's a short book. We can only do so much, right? Uh, so to, to make a comparison – um, you've got the three branches of Abraham and uh, Christianity, uh, Judaism, Islam, well, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, however you want to lump them, right? You all, we all look to Abraham. Uh, and then uh, just, again, just to make the project manageable, we had to limit it in some sense. Um, yeah. So uh, we thought, you know, we would just kind of take like, okay, who is our reader? And we're thinking, all right, uh, if our reader is interested in classical theism, probably they'd be interested in one of the big three. Not necessarily. Um, conceptually, that's not necessary, obviously. Um, but what are the, you know, the, the kind of the big three traditions? And if these three traditions, um, which are more robust and, and endorse more doctrines and so forth, uh, if we can make sense of salvation on these traditions, then surely we can make sense of salvation um, on a more minimal a classical theist uh, sort of approach. And so in this chapter, you're basically, as I understand it, you're, you unpack sort of the your understanding of these three traditions in Buddhism in terms of what you're calling salvation or soteriology, the sort of um, the telos of these, of these traditions. Um, and you state your understanding of how these different approaches can be reconciled. And I, I wanted to read this little bit because I thought it was kind of the summary of of your main point and then um, kind of invite you to say a little bit about it. Um, oh, and and you, you're you focusing here again on sort of Garfield's work in, in Buddhist ethics. So you, you say um, that the origin of suffering is found in confusing what is ultimate with what is not, and escaping suffering is achieved by a right orientation toward reality. We can then add that the Buddhist, who also identifies as a classical theist, can rightly believe that part of the process of how she escapes suffering is by way of God resurrecting her body once she dies. And in their resurrected body, she can focus on God and see ultimate reality for how it actually is. Classical theists refer to this as the beatific vision. So first of all, could you just unpack that a little bit for readers, um, what, you're, what you're arguing for there? Yeah, so for ultimate reality, God is ultimate reality. All right, there's like, like as Catherine of Siena, as Jonathan Edwards has stated, there's a sense in which God is and we are not. Um, and, but sometimes what do we, what do we do? <laughs> we, we act like that we are, uh, we are existence, that, that, that we exist, all right, in, in this sense, and that we are ultimate and that the things we're desiring are ultimate. Um, and that just causes confusion and suffering. And so we need to have this kind of right um, mind, so to speak, this right mindset of uh, no, we're empty as 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 um, these Christian uh, scholars have have thought. And uh, uh, when it comes to again, kind of in keeping intact um, personal uh, identity, I would just again appeal to kind of what we discussed earlier about this kind of transtemporal identity of the the various slices where extrinsically they're connected by God's kind of stamp of approval, so to speak, rather than um, some sort of enduring self uh, that's uh, intrinsic to to um, the substance here. Um, but Eric, feel free to add whatever you want to. 
that, that sounds right to me. Uh, I, I wouldn't add much else. Great. Yeah. So you anticipated my my question, which was whether whether on your view a classical theist um, should be like uh, Inwagian, Van Inwagian kind of materialist, or if they should be a dualist like Richard Swinburne. Does this does this view commit you to any sort of positions about um, Christian understandings uh, of personal identity over time, especially when you think about the resurrection, which plays a central role in this in this chapter? Um, I'm not, I don't see any necessary connection there uh, between what we're trying to defend and any particular understanding of what resurrection amounts to. Um, it, it, our room, I'm sorry, our view seems broad enough to take whatever route you might go there. Um, but personally, we might have different ways we might go about that, I'm not sure. But, but uh, again, we're trying to take a broad umbrella approach to this sort of question about uh, personal identity. Um, but I guess Edwards' view would rule out certain other views yeah so <laughs> yeah so it would it would, it would um uh christian scholars like if, if if you read someone like nt Wright or if you read someone like david bentley hart um, they're going to have very different views on what it means to be resurrected and so we, we didn't want to get too much into details here um uh getting obtaining more baggage <laughs> right but uh, ultimately the idea is, is it's a it's creating this kind of transtemporal identity um and um uh, however that looks like whatever that looks like um uh you know um you can create models for it i suppose but um that that's that, that that's a another huge topic that you could spend right. lots of uh, right. trees sacrificing. <laughs> gotcha. Of course. So so as long as for you you can square the Buddhist doctrine of no self with the idea yeah. of some kind of resurrected personal continuity, without there being uh, an underlying enduring substantial self. That's exactly. that's all you're exactly. looking for, basically. Right. Exactly. Because again, the unity may be extrinsic to whatever the self is. It's not yeah. in. What we're calling the self isn't an internal, intrinsic unity. It's held together extrinsically by God's power. Right. Yeah. And so the the Nagarjunian claim that the ultimate truth is that there is no ultimate truth has a little kind of asterisk to it, which is except for God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. So we actually do have a footnote in there, um, or it's not a footnote. Do, do we have footnotes or is it endnotes? I can't. I think it's endnotes. Endnotes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where. Uh, we talk about like Nagarjuna's uh, uh, emptiness of, of uh, emptiness being empty and that sort of thing, um, and yeah, we're 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 not uh, arguing that that particular kind of hardline view of Nagarjuna was is compatible. Um, we're we're, we're going to pass on that. We're just again going for the more minimalistic uh, sketch of the, the the fundamental metaphysical views. Well, let's, in the time that we have uh, left, take up the two chapters on pluralism. There's part one and part two. Uh, basically, my understanding is here, you take up John Hick, right, who's who's famous for his his particular approach to um, religious pluralism that draws a lot on sort of the Kantian distinction between the noumenal and the phenomenal. And, um, you know, he wants to argue that uh, competing religious positions should ceteris paribus have equal weight, but that what that kind of amounts to is that they're they're all sort of equally non-veridical in some sort of sense. Um, so chapter one, you focus on sort of Christian slash classical theist. Um, actually, I think your Christian would be the better term, um, uh, religious yeah. experience. And part two, the second chapter takes up uh, Buddhist religious experience and tries to think about religious pluralism in this context. Um, maybe take the two one at a time. Um, what are you arguing for in the first part about Christian religious experiences? And in particular, you're focusing a lot on miracles, I believe. Yeah, yeah Tyler, so do you I'll take, take maybe that the one? first one yeah. and then you take yeah. the second one. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, there's this kind of objection where um, maybe we shouldn't endorse the metaphysical thesis of theism or Buddhism or whatever. Maybe we should uh, just think that these these are all kind of human constructs uh, from our perspective of reality, trying to to get at what ultimately is there, which can't you know be known in itself without um, mediation of concepts and, and ideas. And um, 
her cognitive limited cognitive uh, uh, noetic structures or whatever. Um, and so it's like, okay, well, no, let, let's let's take let's take why 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 would you believe that? And so Hick gives various reasons as to why. Um, he, for example, he doesn't think that various miracle claims um, regarding the resurrection of Christ or anything like that, and with specifically to Christianity, are are going to fly. Right? He thinks that they're not very good, and he thinks that uh, ultimately you know, all the kind of religious traditions are on the same playing field. And so uh, what we're doing is first saying, well, one, you don't have to have, you know, if you're an externalist, um, if you're an externalist, you're you're not going to be required to um, have access uh, to all the properties which confer warrants. Um, you don't have to um, have arguments necessarily uh, to back up your views. Um Aside from going that kind of route, we look at, okay, well, what is the evidence? Like, is, is Hick right? Um, uh, is, is, is the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus not really good? And so we get into that and defend that, or let's give a, a kind of a brief, typical standard sketch of, of that literature, as well as uh, talk about um, Fatima. And if there was uh, kind of good reasons for thinking that maybe something supernatural occurred uh, there. And Can you just really our quickly conclusions, like. Explain what that is. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Yeah. For the no, listeners. No. Um, so so um, uh, basically, um, at early in the 20th century, uh, there were these three kids who would uh, who were claiming that they were encountering Mary. They end up being uh, taken in by the government and threatened and uh, uh Things aren't going great, but nonetheless, they're still saying, yeah, we're encountering Mary, we're encountering Mary. And finally, they they say, you know what, on a particular day, uh, you know, something great's going to happen. Mary's going to show up, uh, so to speak, and uh, ends up attracting like, uh, I think, uh, at, at most like 100,000 people, um, somewhere between uh, 50 and 100,000 people uh, show up and... Uh, they uh, are expecting to see a miracle. What's going to happen? Well, vast majority of people report seeing the sun. Uh, so it was raining really hard. Um, the rain goes away, right? The sun comes out and it starts to turn colors and spin on its axis and like look like it's heading toward Earth and kind of crash and everyone starts freaking out. Right? And you kind of have this mass experience of the sun blowing up the Earth. Um, and then obviously that doesn't, that doesn't happen. Uh, thankfully, right. We're all still here. Um, and, uh, you know, so people will call this, you know, the miracle of Fatima. And so we look at kind of naturalistic explanations of that to see if they're any good and ultimately find them, them wanting. And so like, no, maybe there really actually is, is like evidence that something supernatural occurred there. Maybe there really is evidence that the resurrection of Jesus uh, occurred, that something supernatural occurred and the, the naturalistic explanations aren't very good. And so uh, we think Hick uh, uh, is wrong here, that, that we can look at individual religious experiences, whether it's because of externalism or because there's good miracles. Uh, you can look at miracle claims and at specific religious experiences as um, vertical and not necessarily as just um, uh, some attempt that's not in tune with reality and how it actually is. So we, we use this not so much to say um, prove Christianity or something like that. Rather, we, we're using this to talk about how the arguments for thinking that we can't know God it are, are uh, can't know divine reality, so to speak, uh, are, are wanting. And this is going to open the doors up for us to take seriously the claims of both Christians and Buddhists when it comes to religious experiences. And, th and that's, that's, that's where uh, Eric, I'm sure, can jump in now. Yeah, so in the second part of the pluralism um, one-two punch, um, we look at um, this notion which I believe comes from Nishitani, the way he sees fleshing it out, uh, what it is to have shunyata experience, or shunyata experience, uh, uh, the, the idea of being in, interdependent and permanent and empty of all being, uh, that 
you uh, get in the course of a Zazen meditative experience. Um, and uh, there's all manner of um, Buddhists and Christians who, who uh, participate in this sort of sitting Zazen type of meditation. Uh, and what I try to argue in that chapter, we argue, I'm sorry, uh, is that uh, both Buddhists and Christians have and report having had uh, what you can call sunyata experience. Uh, and that you can account for uh, how that is possible uh, on the truth of classical theism and uh, on the truth of Buddhism together, right? So Buddhism is going to say, here's what's going on when you have a uh, sunyata experience. Uh, you're experiencing um, what the Christian would call the far side of God, this impersonal uh, ground of, uh, of, uh, of being, uh, the, the, again, the Buddhists isn't going to describe it that way. They're going to describe it in terms of lacking own being, uh, but uh, the, the Christian is going to describe it as uh, uh, this notion of uh, all phenomena being empty in the same sense, right? So you're, you're talking about the same thing, but with, from a slightly different angle and giving it maybe a different uh, metaphysical um, analysis, perhaps, but at, at, this, at the end of the day, you can make sense of this notion that you're uh, describing the same experience enough. Uh, and that's the, the commonality between the Buddhist and the Christian. Um, it would make this, again, this space possible for the Buddhist Christian. Gotcha. So the experience of shunyata in the sort of Zen context is an experience, even though uh, Buddhists would say the emptiness is applying to all phenomena and all things. There's a sense in which you're, tapping into god uh if you could just right. unpack that a little bit i want to make sure I, right I get, again because again you're tapping into the emptiness of all phenomena things objects according to analysis that we give in chapter one right mm -hmm. um that way of talking about things um does not preclude or necessarily exclude the category of something beyond that uh some will say no there's nothing there like abe and, and nagarjuna right but others will say you know maybe there is something out there beyond the phenomena, and maybe they're more open to the idea of there being something behind phenomena um, that, again, you can't talk gotcha. about very well, but you might be able to point to an experience mm -hmm. and say, yeah, there's something, um, not literally a thing, but <laughs> there's uh, and that's what's there's room the far for, side. for the far side of, of the Trinity, the triune God, which would be um, what the Buddhists are experiencing, but not calling it that. Gotcha. Um, Did you want to add to that, Tyler? Or... No, no, that's okay. Fine. All right, great. Well, I, I think that's a, a good place to leave things. There's there's a lot to, to unpack. Obviously, we haven't been able to to nearly cover all the arguments that you you take on in the book. Uh, but I think this gives listeners a sense of the the overview of the structure and they can go pick it up if they wanna wanna dig in more. Uh I appreciate your your time today. Last question for you. Um, what are you working on now? You hint at it a little bit in the last chapter of the book. Uh what are, what's your project now? Yeah, well, since this, we've um, published a paper in a Rutledge, uh, Rutledge book on classical theism. Um, it's an edited collection from Rob Coons and uh, Jonathan Fuquay, where we kind of look at other like kind of Eastern traditions in general. Um, so Shankara, uh, we look at different uh, kind of Taoist and um, Confucian approaches as well and argue kind of like as a room for, for classical theism on all these traditions. And we kind of give a bare sketch of the book um, uh, as well when we're talking about Buddhism and we're just, we say, hey, listen, maybe maybe the ineffable, <laughs> uh, maybe the Tao is, you know, consistent with with God or early Confucian beliefs about um uh shangdi you know that maybe that's consistent with 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 classical theism and so um that might be of interest to your to your listeners but uh, i know currently i'm still thinking about um uh buddhism and classical theism uh in fact we're we're working on a skillful means response uh more thoroughly developed um as i mentioned um earlier uh, in the in the the podcast um and also kind of just continually kind of trying to see uh, where we can draw synthesis from um, from classical theism and these kind of Eastern Indian and Chinese philosophies. Um, one thing I, I didn't mention, by the way, uh, and this is something I discovered after the book uh, was published, 
was that um, Keith Ward has a nice argument from some Buddhists where um, uh, where Nibbana is not kind of just described as uh, in a negative sort of way or like this is sensation of uh, 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 pain ceasing or something like that. Um, it, it's, it's more like bliss, right? Mm -hmm. And um, uh, maybe you might, might say pure consciousness, right? You can even get into the Indian traditions on, on, on kind of uh, help kind of elucidate what bliss, you know, what we're talking about here. And, and that the, if there's, there, there might be a link there to talk about um, uh, God maybe being um, bliss, maybe God being pure consciousness and that sort of thing. So anyway, there, there's, there's more avenues to go, more avenues to investigate. Uh, uh, so anyway, that's, that's what I'm up to. Great. Thanks. Eric. Yeah. So uh, like Tyler was saying, we're, we're finishing up this uh, skillful means Upaya uh, note uh, paper and uh, we're tracking all of the book reviews that we're getting. There's been a lot of kind uh, and interesting uh, reviews and, um, seeing uh, what the response to, to our book might be, you know, keeping our radar open there. Maybe we'll have an opportunity to um, well, take up a, a theme or two. Um, uh, we might elaborate or deal with an objection, perhaps, or we've got our, our radar up. And, um, yeah, so that's the stuff that I've been working on that's relevant to to our project here in the book. Great. Thanks. Well, look forward to seeing more work from you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today about your book. Thanks. Thank you.